Want to know more about cryptocurrency? Well, you're in the right place. This is Crypto Unplugged. A fact-based, straight-talking, no-nonsense look into the world of cryptocurrency. We discuss trading strategies and market advice, review up-and-coming projects, and more. And we've got years of experience and knowledge that can help new and seasoned investors become more confident and comfortable navigating the cryptocurrency landscape. Now, let's get to the podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Crypto. Welcome, listeners, to another special Crypto Unplugged podcast. Doc here as your host as usual, and we're recording this podcast on a day where we saw Bitcoin break below 20k. Personally, do I think we've bottomed out? Not really. We're going to see over the next two or three weeks, and it's going to be an interesting one. But the point is here, listeners, for anybody who's looking to DCA in, um, it's a prime opportunity just to pick up a bit more of your uh, Bitcoins. Now, today, listeners, we're in for a bit of a treat, as I expect us, you know, to talk about a wide variety of uh, topics related to global finance, Bitcoin and crypto in general. And we're extremely pleased to be joined by Natalie Brunel, a journalist, Emmy winning journalist, I might add, worked for CNN, now full time Bitcoin educator, or I can say Bitcoin missionary and host of the Crypto Stories podcast, a fellow podcaster, Natalie, really happy to have you. How are you? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Excellent. Natalie, where are you based at the moment? I'm actually in Southern California. Beautiful weather right now. Okay. Is it? Um, I mean, what's what's the temperature like? You have to say this in Celsius because I don't understand Fahrenheit. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's a good question. It's. Uh, I don't, I'll have to Google <laughs> yeah. the translate. Let's see here. It's 75 <laughs> Fahrenheit. Um, Okay, no. uh, don't worry about Googling it, but I think I've got an idea. It's, it's really cool. Where I'm based at the moment. 23. So it's nice and pleasant, isn't yes. it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, at, at, at the moment, uh, Natalie, it's 10 p.m. where I am. I'm in Dubai, and uh, I think it's uh, probably mid-30s. Um, but, you know, you've got to take uh, the good with uh, the bad, I suppose, right? For sure, yes. <laughs> I love Dubai, by the way. Uh, excellent. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Look, Natalie, just before we get onto this, you know, the chunk of the questions and stuff, seen your social media and you've been like holidaying about recently, um, looking to have a, like, you know, having a great time. Oh, well, actually, have you been traveled around? Actually, yeah. most of my travel is for work. So I've had the fortune ever since I started my podcast, Coin Stories, uh, and started Bitcoin education work. I've been able to travel around the world now, including to Dubai and to Europe um, for uh, Bitcoin work. I go to conferences. Um, sometimes I'm a panelist. Sometimes I'm a moderator. Sometimes I do uh, educational seminars about what Bitcoin is, depending on the event. But I'm super, super grateful that I've had this experience. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Natalie, let's go back. Of course, you know, this is similar to your podcast, Coin Stories as well, which absolutely is a fantastic podcast. I've been listening to it, um, you know, quite a lot uh, recently. And um, you were born in Poland, Natalie. Yes. Okay. And you came to the US Chicago at the age of five years old. I believe your Polish nickname was uh, Natalka. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I do a bit of my you, research. You've here, done Natalie. your homework. But yeah. Yeah, I have done a bit of homework. But Natalie, tell me about, you know, growing up as a five-year-old coming to the U.S., Chicago, and, you know, just give me a bit of your journey until you discovered, uh, you came into obviously journalism and, you know, up to the point where you discovered uh, Bitcoin. Sure. So, um you're right. I was born in Poland. I don't really remember uh, living there because I was five when my family came to the the suburbs of Chicago. Um, but I heard a lot of stories from my parents because my parents grew up under communism and life was just, it was a lot harder back then. Um, my mom would tell me stories of how they would have to wait sometimes in line for basic necessities or food. And there was really no sense of upward mobility. And a lot of what she envisioned America to be came from American movies and Hollywood which is kind of is kind of sweet to think about. Um, so she loved movies yeah. and she loved the idea of coming to the U.S. And her father really pushed her, my grandfather um, pushed her to try to get to the U.S. because there was more economic opportunity there. And it was based on, you know, a, a different form of government on, on hopefully capitalistic um, 
you know, uh, ideals. And so she tried for many years when she was young, she would apply for a lottery system and she would apply for visas and, and, and it never worked. Cause it's very, a lot of people don't realize that in countries, in most countries, there's like a, an allotted amount of lottery visas. And every single year people apply to try to come to the U S and it's, you know, yep. the chances are very low because very few people are given that chance. So, um, so my, my mom waited and waited. And when she was 38 and my dad was 41, they finally had the chance to come over. And for my dad, it was kind of a hard decision. He was like, you know, we're older. We don't know the language. It's going to be really hard. And my mom was just, you know, she's a ball of fury and like might and when it comes to just passion and making decisions and bravery and risk taking. So she goes, no, we're, it's not too late. We're young. We can do it. Our kids will have a better life there. So um, so we came and they started over. They had to learn a new language. Um, they both changed, uh, you know, what they were doing. They owned a business back in Poland. They had to start over. My dad became an electrician. My mom worked as a bank teller. Um, and they really just worked hard to be able to afford uh, a house. And they just wanted a middle-class life for my brother and me. And uh, yeah, just as they were finally able to uh, uh, purchase a house. I was in high school. They, they took out a mortgage like, you know, every American does. And, uh, they, we moved into our first house from this tiny apartment that we lived in. And a couple of years later, while I was in college, the financial crisis hit and they lost everything. They went under. And so that was like a really pivotal moment for me as a young person, because I was just graduating college into a recession. I had no clue why my family, you know, lost their house. Well, you know, my parents always worked hard. They played by the rules. They paid their taxes. And we had already had so much financial insecurity when I was young that I was just like, how does, how is this possible? You know, like my family, how did this happen? Uh, so I yeah. set off on a career in journalism, which also kind of, I think led to and, and, and enhanced this feeling that I have of there's something broken in the system, but I don't know what it is. I like something's wrong. Something's sort of rigged. And the people at the top are the beneficiaries and the people at the bottom suffer from, from the situation. And I started to report on all of these problems that I think have gotten worse and worse over the decade that I was a reporter. Um, for example, you know, homelessness, especially in California where I've lived for so long now, it just balloons every single year. You know, someone comes in, elected official, oh, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to spend this money. Yeah. Uh, how, you know, and then the problem gets worse and that politician never loses their job. Um, the civil unrest is increasing. The polarization is increasing. People, you know, school and housing getting more expensive. People's jobs aren't paying as well. Everything is just like this. It felt to me over the last 10 years, like, wow, in America, where you know, if you work hard, you're supposed to be able to achieve the American dream and live the middle class life. Absolutely. It's becoming more and more out of reach. Why is that happening? And so, I guess, like, yeah. I'm going off on, you know, I'm making this too long. But basically, it wasn't until I learned about Bitcoin that I finally understood that our financial system is broken. It is so far in debt that we will never be able to pay it off, and we're paying it off through inflation, which crushes the middle class crushes savers, crushes people like my family. And we create these bubbles that when they pop are very painful for families like mine were in the, in the, in the 0809 bubble. And I want, um, I want to support a technology that addresses these fundamentally broken pieces of our society and government, which is, you know, why I believe in Bitcoin so much. Nice. Okay. You could actually give, you know, long answers. Absolutely fine because it is interesting. And I know, you know, during this financial crisis that you've mentioned this uh, previously as well, um, you know, being around Bitcoin and obviously not knowing because obviously we're none of us, you know, growing up in the UK as well. I'm also a son of immigrants as well. And obviously my parents coming um, at the end of the first world war, you know, at that time, I'm a lot older than you are, Natalie, but you know, obviously it's a tough life and we're not educated in terms of financial uh, management or how obviously the global economy runs and things like this. So it's a bit of a wake, call, wake up call for us, isn't it? I mean, like you mentioned there as well. And, you know, coming across both domestic and, you know, glo global economic crises. And as a result, like you mentioned, uh, you know, your parents uh, struggling, uh, going background, and that led you to understanding a bit more about uh, Bitcoin and going down the rabbit's hole and having a more critical approach yes. uh, to the existing monetary system. I mean, okay, for example, there's a lot of alternatives that are out there. 
And, um, you know, you coming across Bitcoin for the first time, of course, being in journalism, you're obviously CNN reporting about, you know, a lot of problems, economic problems, and like you mentioned, civil unrest and things like this. What is it that struck you? I mean, can you remember a conversation that you had with someone or something that you read that basically was like a, a light bulb moment? Yeah. So I actually, I wasn't working at CNN at the time. CNN was my first job in journalism. And okay. then I've worked my way um, through different cities and and I went to uh, a national level. But in 2017, I, I learned about Bitcoin for the first time. And I f- I found like so many people that I just, I really, you know, kind of glazed over it. I was like, you know, this is probably like a stock. It's digital. So it's vulnerable to hacking or someone could steal it. It's, it could go, you know, it could go to zero. I just, I believed all the misconceptions and misinformation that's out there. And the moment that transformed me and the aha moment for me was when I had a mentor of mine give me the book, The Bitcoin Standard. It's by Dr. Saifedina Moose. Um, For people familiar with Bitcoin, you might know it. For others, I highly recommend it. And the book, uh, it's a bit of a misnomer, to be honest with you, because it makes it sound like the book. I mean, to me, when I picked it up and I, Bitcoin Standard, I thought it's a book about computer science or the technology, or it's about like how it was programmed and it's it's completely not it's actually a book uh, that's you know 8 or 9 chapters about the history of money and our current financial system and then about two chapters on bitcoin and what it is and why it's trying to fix the problems that were kind of set up in the premise of the book so um that was the aha moment for me because again i I knew that there was something going on in the system that was broken and that was disadvantageous to the working class, the average person, but I didn't understand what it was until the book taught me about how our financial system was set up, why the US dollar was the global reserve currency, when we went off the gold standard, the idea of hard money uh, and what money printing was. And, And that was like, for me, it was like the veil lifting off my eyes and I thought, wow, a lot of the problems we yeah. have are because we exist in a system of debt with money that is not backed by anything that politicians can spend with no consequences. And we really need a return to hard money. And Bitcoin provides us that potential. Yeah, it's actually a very interesting uh, angle, uh, Natalie, because obviously, look, the book um, by uh, Dr. Saifuddin Amos is a fantastic book. And like you mentioned, going through the history of money, uh, and not, not many of us have an understanding. Obviously, we just take it as, you know, we're living in this society. Uh, we're spending dollars. It's always existed. We, maybe some of us, you know, looking back at my life as well, didn't even realize at a certain age that obviously money used to be backed by gold and silver. Exactly. But, you know, yeah, absolutely. Because we, we're not taught to think like that. We're conditioned in a way that this is something that is the, the status quo has always existed. But coming back onto your, uh, you know, your career, your mainstream media ca- career as a broadcast journalist, mm-hmm. and you being around, you've you know obviously came across Bitcoin. You probably heard of Bitcoin at that time, and I'm sure, obviously, you're still in contact with a lot of your yeah. former colleagues and stuff. Yeah. So since 2017, I think that's the, the time that you come across Bitcoin, and now you know five, six years later. I mean, what have you noticed in terms of the difference in attitudes? You know, since 2017 with some of your colleagues or some of the people that you come across in mainstream media and how they would report on a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin Mm -hmm. and, you know, and the attitude, has it changed? I mean, maybe give us some anecdote of the most annoying, you know, staunchest opponents or the narratives that they use. Yeah. I mean, there are so many uh, false narratives out there. And I do think one thing is that I see Bitcoin in the news more, especially in the last you know, year or two when Bitcoin had that run up to its all-time high, uh, you know, there was more attention on it. So it's definitely being covered more. It's definitely being discussed more. Whereas I... I remember when I first learned about Bitcoin, I did pitch a story and I was able to finagle one story in my in my news job at the time. But you know, I, you did, yeah, just just one, yeah. But it really wasn't okay. it wasn't covered as much. Um, and and the yeah. false narratives are, are the same, but you know, heightened now. It's just the, this idea that the energy use is bad and it's too much, which you really have to dig into because that's a very nuanced argument, and people uh, don't understand really what how the energy is being used what kind of energy is being used and why um, why it's important, why, why energy and electricity are fundamental to Bitcoin. Um, the narrative that Bitcoin is the same as crypto, which I think is a huge one. And I, I hope that as, it, as there's more adoption and education and awareness, that people will start to understand and appreciate the differences because Bitcoin 
is not the same as crypto and all these other currencies that exist out there. Um, and I don't know. I just think that a lot of people are it's there's such a hesitation because the system as it's designed is is designed to protect itself right the people in power don't want to lose power and bitcoin fundamentally is is this concept of separating money from any sort of power which really has never existed even on the gold standard right um for us to have a completely decentralized monetary network that no one can manipulate no one can expand the supply of no one can control that's really powerful but the people who are in charge of the money printer the political you know sphere that that's a very difficult prerogative to give up you, you don't want to lose your prerogative on power. So uh, so I think it's going to be interesting the next couple of years how Bitcoin adoption grows while it's faced with, you know, central bankers around the world pushing against it because it does remove their power. No, it's interesting as well. I mean, you mentioned this about, you know, the people who do not want change in a sense as well. And obviously, you know, shifting on to a more political discussion in that sense, Natalie, because obviously, look, we can talk openly and we're quite honest to talk about these things. I mean, like, for example, the concept of a democracy in a sense, or obviously elections that come about and obviously a lot of uh, political parties polarized in that sense as well. But, you know, for example, change within, within the system in that sense, you know, it's slightly from what I get from your tone and your answer, that you don't believe that it's possible for there to be this type of Bitcoin revolution from within the system by lobbying, obviously, politicians or anybody who's has vested interest in their uh, political parties. I mean, would you say that's correct? Well, I think that Bitcoin will be embraced ultimately, especially by Western governments, because there's such a... Um, a competitive economic advantage to Bitcoin. I mean, first of all, if you have it on your reserves and it continues to grow, that is an asset that has it can cannot be diluted by inflation, and it's backed by the most powerful computer network in in the world. And and the adoption is growing faster than the internet was in the '90s. So, um, in addition, the ecosystem that's growing in terms of Bitcoin mining infrastructure, that provides jobs, that provides um, enhancement to energy grids. I mean, there's so many economic benefits to adopting Bitcoin. And so I think that the only pushback that has existed is due to misinformation or the lack of education among our elected officials. And there are many efforts underway to make sure they really understand Bitcoin in order to make the right policy decisions. Because once people understand Bitcoin, no matter if you're right or left, whatever your political leaning, you uh, generally are for it unless you're really corrupt and you don't want to lose the hand of power. Um, and so I think yep. that in the future, Bitcoin will be adopted and accepted because elected officials will see that this actually gives us a huge competitive advantage on the left you know the for the progressives it banks the unbanked it allows for a financial revolution it allows for the the little guy to have a seat at the table again and for the people on the right it's about sovereignty freedom um you know smaller government the idea that you take responsibility there are consequences to 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 what you do uh, and i think both you know on both sides ideals are sort of met and fulfilled that allow us to maybe bridge the political divide finally. Um, and so I, I do think that they will make smart decisions on it. And and knowing also that this is like trying to ban or control the internet. You just, you can't, you know, if you want to push aside, push away yeah. technological innovation and entrepreneurship and wealth accumulation, you're going to just push it to a different place, a different jurisdiction, a different country. And we don't want that. I, I mean, some of the people I've interviewed on my show, they've talked about the idea of, well, you know, what if Russia, what if China understand this first and they get in on Bitcoin? Well, America's going to be left behind because we've created a system in which we've gone so far into debt that our debt is 370% of GDP. And now we're just financing that debt with inflation, which again, back to my earlier point, crushes the people that are actually working in this country. It's horrible. It's horrible. So I, you know, I believe we're going to make the right decision, but more elected officials need to truly understand Bitcoin in order to make those decisions. Absolutely. And obviously you're talking about education in that sense or creating what you call uh, public awareness and not only public awareness, obviously more um, targeted awareness amongst certain individuals or decision makers or policy makers uh, in order to convince them things like this. Now, I'm not sure this is the case, but did you actually interview um, the president of El, Sa El Salvador, Najib Bukele? 
Um, so I didn't interview him for my podcast. I actually sat down with him for a, a yeah. meeting and I had the chance to talk to him about Bitcoin and his background, which is really fascinating. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but before he was uh, president, he was mayor. And before that, he was a business owner in, in San Salvador. He owned um, like bars and clubs and he worked really hard. He actually has been in Bitcoin for many, many years. He, under he understands it. He's put in the work. And I think, you know, it, it's interesting to see headlines lines that call him a dictator. Because when I think about someone who's a dictator adopting a form of money that he can never control, he can never manipulate, he can never expand the supply of, um, you know, that's, that doesn't really fall in, in the same category, I think. Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. It's completely contradictory com to the concept of dictatorship. Completely. Yeah. I, I just, I think that he's actually being extremely progressive. And I think that he has really great intentions. I mean, sitting down with him, you know, you get a chance when you talk face to face with someone across the table, you really see their humanity and see their, what drives them, what motivates them. And for him, what motivates him is he loves his country and he wants to see the people have more economic opportunity and for his country to do better and be better than it was a decade ago. And he's seen the civil unrest and he's lived through it. And he wants El Salvador to be a place that families are proud to live in and can continue to live in and have more families for the future. And so, you know, it's funny when I see headlines almost like sneering at the fact that Bitcoin is down and, you know, El Salvador, see, like, see what mistake you made. It's like, why are you rooting for it to be a mistake? You know, if Bitcoin is to work and it, and it I think it will work. This is going to be great for everybody. You know, everybody that's in Bitcoin will win if Bitcoin wins. So why would you cheer against a country for taking this step to try to provide people with a, a form of banking, a form of financial services that they otherwise don't have access to? I mean, a lot of people in El Salvador were not banked before Bitcoin and having a wallet. And yes, it's volatile. But again, it's also introducing the concept of saving, which El when I went to El Salvador, a lot of people don't have that. Um, pattern of, yeah. of using their money to save. They literally live hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. They take out loans to purchase the things that they sell at the market. And so this is introducing the idea that, hey, you know, save a little bit of this because again, Bitcoin is scarce. And it, if it goes up in value the way it has been, you could actually provide your family with more financial security. Um, so I, you know, I, I actually loved meeting him. He was very kind, um, very open, very welcoming. And I loved his, I loved hearing his views on Bitcoin because it's clear he's read all the books and done the homework. No, that's fantastic. And hopefully you have an opportunity to interview him on, on your podcast soon. But yeah, I mean, this, this type of thinking, obviously, when people want it to fail, or for example, seeing the volatility and, you know, obviously in social media, you've got a lot of vitriol, vitriolic and fucked up type of bullshit that goes on that people obviously want to just prove a point in order to see the world burn in that sense mm -hmm. which is a bit messed up in in a way yeah. obviously look everybody's got an own opinion and obviously twitter's the most polarized of so all social media in that sense but you know coming back on to this the bitcoin uh concept of, of change and obviously how we see, for example, yeah, it's an alternative to the current fiat system. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, most political and ideological commentators would predominantly say that it's the economic policy of a nation or region that drives the overall policy, you know, capitalism in itself, or, you know, communism, like you mentioned, for example, um, your family background. So do you see Bitcoin more as an ideological solution to existing problems around the world? Or do you feel that, obviously, Bitcoin is you know, just restricted to monetary concepts because, you know, a lot of people do have the narrative. There's a lot of rhetoric that goes on that bit Bitcoin can obviously solve a lot of issues, you know, even if it's out of the monetary sphere. I mean, what's your view related to Bitcoin as more of an ideological solution? Well, well absolutely. I think it's both. I think it's ideology that is sort of achieved through a techno a technological breakthrough in many ways. I mean, I think that Bitcoin is the most important invention of our time. Um, and I, I really believe that it allows for us to almost, you know, flip the worst aspects of human nature, which I would argue one of those is greed, flip it on its head and, and make that an incentive system um, that actually benefits the majority of people as opposed to the few, which is our current system. Um, and so I, I, 
I, I do think it's highly ideological because, you know, we, we talk about the idea of capitalism and capitalism, in my opinion, has allowed for more access to economic opportunity and prosperity than any other form of, of, of economics and government leadership. Um, but we don't have capitalism in the United States, in my opinion, anymore, because capitalism doesn't have a system of rent seeking and bailout and, you know, a structure in which basically massive institutions are too big to fail and they can take, um, you know, a ridiculous amount of risk at the expense of taxpayers because the government will always step in with debt to make sure that they're, you know, they're their executive bonuses are being paid and everyone gets bailed out. I just don't think that that's capitalism because in capitalism, actually things that don't work or are mismanaged or took on too much risk are allowed to fail. We actually see more capitalism right now in the crypto market, you know, and it's painful. We have painful lessons being learned, but we're seeing the, the liquidity kind of drain out from projects that were not property properly collateralized. They were not properly managed. And now, you know, it sucks for the investors that, believed or invested in those companies, but they're allowed to fail. There's no big papa bear, mama bear coming in from the Federal Reserve saying, don't worry, we're going to hand you a check and we're all good. Like maybe <laughs> yeah. things should, yeah. maybe there should be a cleansing and the system would be more fair. Because again, if you have a system of government where they can write blank checks and spend as much money as they want because it's all debt, essentially, it's it's something that we kick the can down the road for future generations to deal with while you have job security and a nice pension, that doesn't create a system where people can actually thrive and provide value. Everything's diluted and everything gets um, pushed into these two classes of people where it's now the, the haves are a grow like they have the growing majority of the pie and they have all the houses and they are all the landlords and they have all the stocks and the equities and everyone else is at the bottom sort of starting to fight for scraps. Again, that's not capitalism. It's your disadvantage. Yeah. There's a disadvantage. Um, like the propor the proportion that goes the advantage goes to the top at the expense of everybody at the bottom the losses are socialized and so i don't think we have capitalism and i think this is a highly ideological conversation and bitcoin sort of again just is this seed that is has been planted that can address these issues if it's allowed to grow and and take on sort of the the potential that i think it has now, interesting views there, Natalie. And, you know, obviously it's clear that you've thought about this um, very well and obviously done a lot of research into this and obviously, you know, in line with your uh, your thinking, coming to those type of conclusions in that sense, uh, with your outlook on what capitalism really is and how Bitcoin obviously, or what we see as a model capitalism that doesn't really exist in the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing is that coming, coming on to this issue of Bitcoin and maximalism, Okay, mm -hmm. so a lot of people, they have this rhetorical approach to Bitcoin sometimes, believe Bitcoin, you know, um, can solve everything. I mean, obviously, we, we don't like to clutter everybody in the same, you know, um, classification, maximalist, minimalist, uh, shitcoin holder, uh, whatever. So obviously, there's a lot of um, shades of gray, you can say, when it comes to people who are holding on to Bitcoin. Your personal perspective on this because a lot of people who are hold bitcoin it's a more like a defragmented type of uh, uh classification of what a maximalist what how would how would you classify yourself i mean i don't like to use labels natalie i really hate those things but you know just for the sake of uh, this discussion what would you see yourself in terms of Bitcoin yeah. and, and maximalism? Sure. So people label me as a maximalist because I I believe in Bitcoin and I don't promote or advocate for any of the other cryptocurrencies. Um, but really, this drives at the fundamental difference between Bitcoin and crypto because Bitcoin addresses the problems that exist within our money and our monetary system at large. And Bitcoin is designed and, and fully capable of addressing those issues. Whereas all the other cryptocurrencies I see as securities like stocks, investments, and I believe in free markets. I believe that everyone should invest based on their own risk tolerance and their own preferences and companies or projects that they believe in, knowing that there is a risk to them because most of these projects are centralized and they have, you know, a body that's in control of what happens and, and what the fate is and what the supply is and, and all of that. And so you need to be a little bit more careful. Um, I would never attack someone for, 
you know, investing in something that they believe in. Um, but me personally, I was looking for something that is a better form of money. That is the ultimate store of value that no one can seize from me, that no one can confiscate, dilute, um, control. And, and I was really intrigued by the idea that, you know, we could maybe transform ourselves back to a nation of savers as opposed to just debtors. Everybody's in, in debt. We had record numbers of consumer debt, you know, numbers coming out recently in terms of credit cards and all that. People are just, everyone's in debt. You know, nobody owns thing. Nobody owns their house outright. And we just take out these lines of credit. And I don't think that that makes for a prop prosperous nation, one that produces economic value that creates just like a burden on, on the whole system and on the future and our future generations. And um, and I think one of the reasons we have that is because there's it's it, the system at large incentivizes you to take on debt, and there it's not very easy to save. You basically have to become. I mean, I've mentioned it today on on Twitter with one of my interviews. Today, in order to save the money that you earn in your first job or your main job, you have to p- try to guess what stocks to pick and like try to you know become a stock trader, stock investor, get to know the equities or hire a portfolio manager. Or you have to become a landlord and get a second mortgage and have passive income through. Like, why does it have to be so hard when you earn your money to just keep its value? And unfortunately, it's absolutely of, crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah sorry. So, the, so I mean, ultimately, that's what I believe in Bitcoin for, and it does that 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 goal, that mission is is unique in the cryptocurrency space. All these other cryptos, they're addressing this and that, and oh, get rich quick or yield or you know, we're building on art, we're building on, we're transforming real. Okay, cool. Like, I wish you guys luck, but none of you are a fundamentally new version of saving that is a real form of hard money in a digital format and digital property, digital commodity that can potentially allow us to carry value into the future. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because obviously, look, there's a number of approaches that someone can come into understanding cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and how you segregated Bitcoin from other uh, cryptocurrencies, whether it's Ethereum, Polkadot, or whatever type of ecosystem, or like you mentioned, you know, digital art, NFTs, metaverse, or what have you. I mean, your focus, you know, from your answers, you know, from to my questions and from what I understand of your background, Natalie, is you're more focused on changing the world and the, and the current problems that exist because of the fiat system. So, I mean, let me let me ask you an honest question, okay? Now, Natalie, look, obviously these get-rich schemes, it just obviously does make life a bit easier when, for example, someone does invest in, in, in an altcoin. And from your perspective, do you see yourself as a Bitcoin and having a firm criteria of action that you don't compromise on that? Or do you ever get tempted to invest in in uh, projects that don't fall in line with your values about changing the economic situation around the world? I don't because, again, I feel like there's too much risk involved. I actually see Bitcoin as the least risky bet in this whole space. Um, I mean, it's it's the network effect is so powerful. And at this point, I don't believe that you could ever recreate Bitcoin. It, it, to me, that's like recreating the protocol of the internet or of email or, you know, recreating Google. I mean, technically anyone can create a search engine, but make it make it have the network effect globally of Google. That would be very challenging for any person, even with a ton of money to do. Uh, so that's how yeah. I see Bitcoin. And no, the attractive yields, I just... I you know, we're seeing it happen right now. Um, I think when something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And these companies, you're now introducing a third party, you're introducing risk, and you're introducing exactly what, you know, Bitcoin stands against. And Bitcoin is you become your own bank. Bitcoin is you become self-sovereign and you take on um, the responsibility so that you don't it's a trustless, permissionless system. You don't trust any third party. That's what we're trying to get away from. Um, so now when you introduce these banks that are not regulated, they're not, um, you know, they may or may not have the proper liquidity or reserves, they're offering this and you have to be very, very careful. And I, again, I feel really sorry for the people that can't access their funds on some of these accounts, but it's a painful lesson that might need to be learned um, because in the future, you don't you you really want to manage your risk better than that 
I, I agree with you there in a sense, uh, Natalie, as well, because obviously, look, life is a bit of a journey, isn't it? Okay. You know, I start off at zero degrees and then end up back at zero degrees. But the point is going full circle and going through those 360 degrees is absolutely important to go through all of that shit, get stung and, uh, you know, to, to lose out, to realize some, sometimes something is staring you straight in the face in that, in that sense, you know, like life and, and similarly life in crypto or investments in Bitcoin is similarly similar in that sense. And, um, you know, from a market perspective, I mean, Natalie, do you study charts or are you more of someone who just DCAs in, buys dips or just continues to hodl? And I mean, what's, what's your investment strategy if you, if you could share this? I mean, how, how do you see this uh, uh, Bitcoin with selling and buying and looking at the markets and technical analysis and stuff? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's different. I, I love the DCA strategy because I just think it's, it's, it's the easiest, right? And you take, you, you benefit from the upswings and the downswings and all of it just gets averaged out at the end of the year. So I, I have a direct deposit that I make every single week. Um, and I am happy with that. However, that being said, you know, the market is volatile and there are times where there is a good buy-in opportunity. And so if I have saved up a little bit more cash for one of those opportunities, then I think that's great too, this being one of them. So I think that these are really great entry points. Um, but at the same time, I think it also could go lower. So if you have a little, you know, some of us have said in the Bitcoin space that we have been putting aside a little bit of cash knowing that if it dips down, we'll, you know, we'll deploy a little bit more so we could get a bigger chunk of Bitcoin. Um, and so I just, I think it depends on the person, you know, everybody has such different earnings and, and savings abilities and, and what they need their cash for on a day-to-day basis. And so I just believe that in, in the same way that Lynn Alden, um, who's, you know, so, so amazing and brilliant in this space and has contributed so much, she's like the, just get off zero, just get off zero. A, a non-zero position is the correct one when it comes to Bitcoin at this point. And so whether that's 1%, yeah. 5%, 10%, you know, just having something, even giving up, uh, uh, you know, your coffee every week and deciding that money is going to go into Bitcoin. I just think that that's really important right now. Oh, interesting, you know, uh, Lynn Alden's uh, perspective on this, because I remember first coming into the space myself, um, Natalie, and, uh, you know, obviously I was working at that time, I was in full-time crypto, and uh, wh- like you mentioned, something like coffee or whatever, now obviously Bitcoin was at that time was lo- less than $4,000, but yeah, I mean, for me personally as well, DCA strategy works very well, and at the moment, it's nothing to be obviously sad about, it's more of an opportunity in that sense to obviously build up our positions when it comes to the future as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, you're talking about risk taking and non risk taking your background and obviously what your family went through as well. Do you believe, for example, that safety net or that type of uh, mentality was shaped, you know, according to those events and coming, you know, and your background and things like this, or is this something that you obviously just, um, felt important? No, I, I think I was really influenced by my family's background. Um, cause like I said, again, you know, birth is such a lottery, right? None of of us can decide who our parents are, what part of the world we're born, and what socioeconomic situation we come into. And we do the best that we can. And education is so critical and so important. And I think thank goodness that we live in a time where the internet can bridge some of those gaps. Like if you can't go to a, you know, you can't go to Harvard. Well, now you can actually have Harvard classes on YouTube in many ways. It's really empowering, I think, from a democratization of information and education standpoint. Um, But I think that everyone, no matter where you come from, should have a a chance, you know, to make life better for themselves and for their families than the one they came from. I think everyone, if they are willing to work hard and they're good people, they should have a shot, you know, at economic opportunity and not one that is, is, it's like a a constant rat race of, you know, every year it gets harder and more and more um, difficult to afford things because the money you earn every year is less. It's like almost like the, 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 they call it the road to serfdom, right? In in economics, you're basically yeah. working harder and harder, but the money's being worth it's worth less and less until you ultimately become just a slave to the whole system. That's sad to me. Like, why do why why would we want even if you're at the top of the of the societal class? Why would you want everyone else to suffer in that way? You know, and and so I think that 
that was fundamental for me is just seeing how hard my parents worked. It was like every year they worked harder and harder. And just as they were finally able to afford a house, boom, they lose it and they have to start over. And it's like, why did this happen? Why why did the banks get bailed out, but not my parents? Why did the banks take on so much risk that all of this happened in the first place? Why? Like, it, 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 I just had all these questions in my head. And I, I, I would argue that, you know, right now, a lot of people just don't have hope they don't have hope. They feel like everything's yeah. polarized and we're going in this bad direction. We can't have kids because we can't afford to have kids. The climate, everything is just so negative. And I worked in the industry that, you know, uh, elicits yeah. those like negative headlines. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. but Bitcoin is an injection of hope. It's this idea that no, we can rebuild a parallel system that's based on technology and truth where no person has an advantage just because they sit close to, you know, Washington, D.C. And I just think that that's amazing. And that that's something I do want to promote and, and advocate for because it's a system that I think will make life better for the majority of people who, just like they do today, they just want to work and take care of their families. And they should do it for a form of money that isn't being destroyed by political leaders and and people at the top. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, look, you know, all of us have been through that situation. And obviously, generations that preceded us, particularly, for example, um, families who've come over from different countries didn't have the opportunity to go to Western countries or more developed nations to give us an opportunity like that. But being stuck in that system as well, like you mentioned, it's a bit of a, a hamster wheel, isn't it? Uh, in that sense, there's no way to break out of that, obviously, if we're within that system. I mean, yourself, when you came out of uh, employment and you went into full-time crypto, um, doesn't it feel so liberating, uh, Natalie? It does. Um, I never thought that I would be able to go off on my own and monetize what I'm doing at all. I, you know, I thought that um, I thought that I would be working probably for a corporate media entity, and yeah, yeah, and and this has allowed me to really speak what what is so authentic in my heart and in my mind, and what I think will make the world a better place. Like for me, this really all of this is about promoting a form of technology that I believe will make life easier for people and will allow more prosperity to flourish in our economy. And, and it's about educating people about why they might feel left behind and what's been causing it. Cause I think that our education system does not teach us some of these things, unfortunately. Um, so I feel very passionate and excited about that. And I hope it's inspiring for other people. Like if you have a conviction, if you believe in something, you should, you know, pursue it because, uh, if it if it if it has value, um, it will grow. And I've been really grateful for for this point in my journey. No, and I admire your work ethic, Natalie. Without obviously, you know, um, making you a bit too happy and smiling in that way. But I do work, admire your work ethic, and I think you're doing a wonderful, um, you know, wonderful educating, uh, you know. Uh, general masses in that sense and doing a really good job uh, making people aware of what bitcoin is really about and this narrative that um of the fiat system and how obviously bitcoin counters that um natalie just before we go on to a fun round of questions which is obviously uh, part and parcel of crypto unplugged i'll just ask you about one more question related to macroeconomics i mean do you think, for example, because there's a lot of debate nowadays and you're very active on Twitter and social media and you see a lot of people suddenly becoming experts in macroeconomics and things like this. Do you believe, I know it's a very long, massive subject, but do you believe obviously that the headlines do affect um Bitcoin and its pricing? Sure. I think a lot of things affect Bitcoin in the short term. I think a lot of things yeah. are, you know, um, they it's such a new asset class. It's in the process of monetization. And so many people really don't understand it. We are not at, they predict a billion users by 2025. We're not there yet, but it is growing very, very quickly. Um, and so I think that of course, um, you know, the greater macroeconomic picture is going to affect what happens, interest rates as, as liquidity drains from everything, it's going to drain from Bitcoin because Bitcoin is extremely liquid. Uh, and, and, and short-term traders, you know, they, really benefit and um, profit on the uh, on the volatility. So I, I think that in the short term, it's going to be correlated to a lot of what's going on. And I believe in the long term, it will decouple and not be as correlated. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you there, Natalie. But uh, Natalie, stick around with us. I'm going to ask you a few unrelated crypto questions for a few minutes or so. So listeners, just stick around while I put Natalie on the spot and ask her a few unrelated crypto questions. Okay. 
Crypto Unplugged. Welcome back, listeners. So we have Natalie Brunel here, just giving us wonderful insights into her journey in Bitcoin and, and giving her views related to uh, the global economic situation and how Bitcoin does uh, as an alternative for that. But Natalie, look, we're going to put you on, on the spot and ask you a few questions related to um, other stuff. Yeah? Sure. Okay. So Natalie, are you ready? Yeah? Yep. Okay. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. What does that mean to you, Natalie? And why is that why is that quote so important to you? Oh, that's from Little Prince. I love that. Um, yeah. you know, I just yeah. I just believe that we should we should follow our hearts. And I think that there are a lot of universal things that connect us. There's so much in the outside world and in media that disconnect us and that make us feel like we're all in different tribes or, or on different teams, but at the end of it, I mean, most of us want the same thing. We want to be happy. We want to connect with others. We want to make life better for um, for our children. And I think that if we stick to those values, um, we really are able to, I don't know, see our true selves. Like so other things can blind us in the world, but um, but I think we need to like ultimately go back to that. I call it now the seed of your soul um, from a book that I read via Preston Pish. Um, but we really, we need to stay more true to ourselves and these values that actually connect us as, as, as opposed to push us further apart. Now, interesting because Natalie, look, I've been going for the same journey myself for the last few years as well, this road to authenticity and obviously trying to unlearn what I've learned and really, you know, pushing my intuition uh, to make decisions you know, in the subconscious sense as well, which is usually right and being true to ourselves and not obviously uh, thinking about what other people think or whatever. And there is an interesting thing. And a lot of people I've come across recently as well, our circle tends to be a bit smaller as well in terms of friendships. But you're absolutely right. And, it, you know, it caught my eye as well when you when I read this, that is your favorite uh, quote. And it shows obviously from an analytical perspective of literature that obviously it's uh it could be a, a road to authenticity to oneself right um okay let me ask you because now excuse my pronunciation because it could be a bit i could butcher this okay now um peachy alla aglioni is that right as yeah, italian yeah, food peachy alla leone, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay fair enough i'll let you or cutlet shabawi cutlet sabove so, okay, fine. So, excuse my, uh, you know, my Polish and Italian uh, pronunciation. So, which one would you choose? Oh, that's hard. Um, I would say kotlets habove because it's my favorite thing that my mom made for me growing up, and I ate it like multiple nights a week when I was little. <laughs> yeah, so it's part of your upbringing, isn't it? Yeah, percent. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Now, your favorite version of the film adaptation of Count of Monte Cristo, which one would it be? It, it's the one with, um, oh God, what's the actor? Uh, he was the one that played in the um, Passion of Christ. Uh, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, okay, oh, yeah, I know. It. So it's a 2002 version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. I've got it, I've got it. Okay, Godfather 1 or Godfather 2? Godfather, ooh, that's tough. Um, yeah. I, I, would, I would have to say number one. I mean, the classic. I, I would have to say number one. Yeah. Apollonia. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Okay, everybody. I was in love with Apollonia, by the way. Okay, so Don Vito Corleone played by Marlon Brando or Robert De Niro? Which one? Um, Robert De Niro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you there. And that, Natalie, is it true that your your uh, celebrity crush was Ben Affleck? Yeah. At one point, yeah. Before he got the, <laughs> before he got the <laughs> and admitted that he has like yeah. a massive yeah no. Uh, <laughs> When I was younger, sorry to put you to spot, yeah. When I, he's very yeah. handsome. Like so, when I was little, I remember being in school, and I we were new to the country, and it was elementary school, and they played us a TV show in I think my science class is called Voyage of the Mimi, and Ben Affleck was yeah. very young in that. That was like his first piece of work in Hollywood, and I just thought he was so cute. So he was a crush of mine for a while, and then and then he wasn't. <laughs> So, so was he your first uh, celebrity crush? I would say so, yeah. That you could remember? I would okay, say fair so, enough. Yeah. That's what I wanted to know. All right. So, look, Natalie, I'm a bit of an 80s file, yeah? You know, listeners on our podcast would know that I can't stop talking about and feeling nostalgic about the 80s. And I understand you like the 90s a bit, right? Yes, I love 90s music. Yeah, that's when I grew up, yeah. Okay, so your favorite 90s song? Uh, my favorite 90s song. That's really hard. Um... I mean, I really like 
Oh God, this is so hard. I have so many. Um, uh, uh, how about uh, uh, what is? I, I don't know if this is '90s or '80s, but I really like the song "What Is Love." <laughs> what What is love? I'm not going to do a singing rendition on the show, but I absolutely know who you're talking about. I think by a Swedish artist, right? Uh, it's like by Hathaway. Hathaway, what is love? I don't have a good voice, but it's really good. Uh. Natalie, fuck, I'm gonna you can you can I'm gonna put on Apple Music right now and you can I'm just gonna stick in my head and I'm gonna curse you later on I, for for that music. Yeah, I, I, it's yeah. not that. I, I honestly I don't know if it's from. I think it might be from the '90s, but it's this song. No, I think it's. Oh shit, you got it on as well. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the song. <laughs> Natalie, seriously, I'm not going to be able to sleep now because you've probably got like, those lyrics. I've got those lyrics ingrained in my head now. I'm so I'm going to curse you later on for putting that in my head. No, no, it's actually a fantastic song. Yeah. I'm okay. Gonna... 90s. Sorry, sorry, Natalie. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Your favorite 90s movie? My favorite 90s movie is Pretty Woman. Okay. Yeah, I would have to agree. Okay. Your favorite 90s iconic piece of clothing? Uh, um, <laughs> spaghetti straps, spaghetti strap shirts. I would say. What, what is that? Spaghetti straps. Yeah. yeah, they they were like girls would wear them in different colors, and they had like a little spaghetti strap. And in my suburb of Chicago, I don't know, maybe Abercrombie clothes. I was I wore <laughs> Abercrombie. Uh, I'm I'm gonna Google that later on. Okay, now obviously taking out what is love okay what was the last song you played on your apple music or spotify the last song i played yeah yeah um it, you remember it was uh cold heart by elton john and dua lipa okay okay i like dua lipa okay now i'm gonna ask you i'm not sure if you follow football but obviously i'm not sure you growing up as a little child your dad must have loved football is that right uh my dad and soccer? my brother both loved european football soccer yeah so did they impose things on you when you wanted to change the channel over that was the football would be on? You couldn't disturb them, right? No, no, they weren't like that religious about it, but um, <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. And you got to choose wisely, Natalie, yeah, because my co-host, he supports another team. Okay. This, you've got a choice. Okay. Liverpool or Manchester United? I don't know. I just I, Manchester United. I don't know. <laughs> oh, Natalie, Natalie. Oh, come on. You just uh, I, destroyed I everything. I just there. guessed. I guess. I don't know. Nah, I don't, I know that's I the one thing about I, me. I've never had really great sports knowledge. So, nah, it's all good. It's all good, Natalie. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, yeah. But Natalie, look, fun, thanks a lot for joining us. It's been really educational, um, having your views on the show and stuff. Do you want to plug in anything uh, before? Uh, we close off. Uh, just check out my podcast, Coin Stories, on podcast platforms as well as YouTube. Um, I also have a show called Hard Money, which airs every Thursday on Bitcoin Magazine's YouTube page. It's at Hard Money on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Connect with me at Nat Brunel. And if you have more questions or want to contact me, you can go to talkingbitcoin.com. Thanks a lot, Natalie. So, listeners, do check out Natalie. Follow her on Twitter and. Uh, highly recommend you to listen to her podcast and uh yeah N natalie it's been an absolute pleasure and hopefully we'll bring you back on crypto unplugged in the in the near future thank you so much i appreciate it no thanks a lot okay listeners um thanks a lot for sticking around and see you guys next week thanks for listening to crypto unplugged we hope you learned something from this episode for more information check us out on twitter at crypto underscore unplugged if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like and review us. And thanks again for listening to Crypto Unplugged.